You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the devil in the dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band Great Song. Four cigarette story. Uh, four cigarette story. <laughs> four cigarette story. Yeah, I was outside <laughs> of a uh, of the practice space and what practice space? The practice space. <laughs> right. So I forgot your penchant for anonymity. You know. Yeah, yeah. A, a place where. <laughs> People practice and I okay. play music. Okay, every don't once worry. In a while. No more identifying features and, and facts. It's okay. It, it ex- it's in New York City. I'll tell you that much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good, good, good. A New York City musical practice space. Anyway, I was outside. Thanks for setting the stage. Uh, went out to go. I was like headed out, lighting a cigarette. Uh-huh. I guess I was going down for a little, a little cig break in between playing some music and. Um, this guy walks out and proceed. There's like a, a younger looking guy. Like, you know, he was definitely like closer to 20. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, I, I have mean, a different opinion like on this guy now. Kind of knowing. Okay. He, whatever. Uh, and he puts, he pulls out a pack of cigarettes and he puts four cigarettes in between his pointer and middle finger. Four cigarettes? Four cigarettes. <laughs> and. Puts them, puts them in his mouth, all four of them at once, then lights them all, and uh, yeah, I just assumed I was. I thought we were both doing the same thing in the sense of just waiting for, for his friends, else to someone else yeah, to yeah. come. Because yeah, I was yeah. like, this guy, like, I just that's a weird thing to begin with. But like, all right, so he must be waiting for some friends. That's the only explanation of this strange person I'm seeing. And, it's the only uh, reasonable explanation. The only reasonable explanation, but no, there was no, no friends ever came. <laughs> the guy smoked the whole four cigarettes, <laughs> kept them in between two fingers, smoked it like it was one cigarette, but this weird, like wide. Oh, so bad! What a New York moment! I guess so. What a New York moment, and. On that note, welcome to New York, everybody. Welcome to New York City. We're talking about a New York City rock and roll band today. I'm still surprised. (laughs) Ah, this is the podcast that will piss you off. This is Bad Band, great song. I'm your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and with me is your other host of the show, Jeremy Cohn. Jerry! How you doing? How you been? (laughs) The band we're focusing our critique on today is The Bravery and their song, Unconditional. I wonder why. I never wonder why. 
<laughs> wow, I like that interpretation. <laughs> That's my interpretation. That was good. Yeah. That was that was. I think that was the best one yet, actually. Unconditional. Oh, what? Is, as Jerry just showed us, is the rollicking, hypnotic, petulant, prescient, tragic, forlorn, gauche, enthusiastic, affected, pretentious, affirming, enthralling, exhilarating, and deeply engaging lead single for. The band's entire career, basically. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you really, really love this song. I feel something about it. I for sure do. And we're going to talk all about that today. Unconditional is the song that whetted the appetite of the world back in late 2004 and early 2005. It was released as the sole single for its own EP, featuring two other songs and would, in effect, act as a lead single for their debut album. Though it technically isn't. That distinction tech technically goes to an honest mistake and unconditional was technically released at least in the UK again as the third official single for the album the bravery is a bunch of industry plants kidding maybe who knows i don't know maybe we'll see we're going to find that out but right. the bravery is definitely a quote unquote band based in new york city right and they were for a time a time at the tippy top of the 2000s Garage Rock Revival. So this is what I was hit to get earlier. I honestly, I could have sworn they were from the UK <laughs> this whole time. Yeah. That just was like the, oh, yo, yo. <laughs> like that. Like, <laughs> well, he also, he had a thing for like Fred Perry t-shirts. There was like light, light. Oh, okay. Uh, there was polo some fashion like, influence yeah, 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 there yeah. that must have influenced me too. Mm -hmm. right, I okay. think so. I think so. I think so. And hey, the bravery, they definitely have their stands and, and they... They are out there scouring the halls of every grocery store as we speak. Explain that a little more in the bit. Still, the average person probably isn't, isn't trying to fight us when we say the bravery is a bad band. Everyone has to go to grocery stores. Everybody has to go to grocery stores, but there's only a certain type of music that gets played in grocery stores. Okay, okay, I got you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? We're talking about the mommy blogger crowd again. Wine o'clock, you know. A nice throw pillow that says live, laugh, love. Home yeah. is where the heart is. A wine bottle-sized wine glass. A wine bottle-sized wine glass, exactly. Yeah. Only one glass. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, but as always, as always, while we look at that, the bravery being a bad band, we're not concerned so much by proving to their true believers that their favorite band, the bravery, is bad. No, 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 no. We're looking to appeal to the... I said that so bizarrely. We're looking to appeal to the skeptics regarding the greatness of their song, Unconditional. So we're going to examine the bravery and the song, Unconditional, in detail to articulate how and why to make the case that though the bravery may be a bad band, <laughs> Unconditional is a great song. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Let's talk about Let's it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's stretch the Some definition of there. the word great here. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Jerry kind of got us off on. Wow. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you get me off, baby. If you stay on the first page of Google and use Wikipedia as your only source, which, believe it or not, is not what we do here, folks, you would believe that the Bravery were not only primarily a British band, but you would think that... Right. right. Yeah, but you would think that they also enjoyed an exceptional and unbelievably impressive yet totally organic ascent to the top of hipster 
rock culture within the span of essentially one and a half years. Spoiler. That's not true. That's not how it went down. But that is how it appeared to go down. The bravery's bizarre and mysterious career began nearly 20 full years ago, and that's so fucked up to think about. At the time, when at the time, uh, bassist and future singer Sam Endicott met vocalist Sean Conway at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. The two played together in various bands with various names, a standout being Ska Band, Skaba the Hut. Pick it up, pick it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I, exactly. I, I had to listen to him. And out of the it's two not that songs, kind of ska, right? No, nah, I yeah. mean, basically. Okay. Uh, oh, really? Out of the two songs I found, I'm definitely partial to Fat Guy on My Head. Oh, that yes, that song. That song? Fat Guy on My Head. By Skaba the Hut. That song that I listened to all the time in my youth and enjoyed mm. still have the cassette <laughs> i don't know what fucking planet that lies from after graduation the two moved to new york city endicott dropped the bass and other key members joined the band date our first date these dates are going to be something to pay attention to folks on november 25th 2003 the fever pitch peak of the garage rock revival's mainstream awareness the bravery played their first show their first show at Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York's Stinger Club. Which shut down after a shooting outside. <laughs> How about that? Just five months later, in May of 2004, no exact date, May 2004, the band began their fateful month-long Arlene's Grocery Residency. And at the time was an absolute make-or-break opportunity in New York. Really was. Actually meant something back then. Now... During this time, the band experienced some key radio airplay in local U.S. markets. Now, make no mistake about it. This is, this is due to A&R interest. A hundred percent. This is collusion. Threads. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, what, that's what we're gonna, how we're going to refer to this. This is collusion. This is, this is record labels both directly and indirectly using radio as a litmus test. Without going deep into the very real and literal conclusion that is the star-making process, something that we've flirted with a lot on this show, you can bet this key radio airplay in U.S. markets outside of NYC in 2003, when the band had never toured, had no visibility, and the internet wasn't what it is now, that was all due mostly, if not totally, to A&R guys calling up these local DJs and saying something along the lines of, like, uh, you know, something kind of like... Uh, yeah, hey, 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 we got this band that could be uh, big. We're going to need you to play this song, engage the response, and let us know. Capiche? Yeah, I mean, that, and less, less of less that. Less of a request. Less, less of, of that, a request. and less of a request, and much more just participating in a pay-to-play structure. Sure. Like, that's what the radio is. I wanted to bring the real brute mentality. You know? I wanted <laughs> I like to bring that, that character like that. into it. But yeah, I feel you. No, no, no. This is just this is just high level. But this is like really just yeah. just just kind of deal making that has a chokehold on creativity. Anyway, right. by August 2004, just three months after their month long A&R speed dating Arlene's grocery residency, and just nine months after their first show. The Bravery was signed to Island Def Jam in the U.S. and Lug Records in the U.K. You see, <laughs> just read a surface level recounting of the events. 
You'd think they're guns and fucking roses or something. This is not exactly that. This isn't a larger-than-life, once-in-a-generation band dominating in every way, and NR executives just, just couldn't pretend not to notice anymore. No. This is a band at the right place, at the right time, that looked and sounded right enough that they inspired A&R to people to push them a bit and just see how things play out. So, rinse and repeat. The machine took the month-long residency template and brought it to London. You know, the city bans from other places go so they can blow up. How about that, huh? Isn't that interesting? London. Enemy! Small country. Blow up huge. Fascinating stuff. Really good. Something else there. In between weekly Thursday gigs at London's Metro Club, the band was shoved on stage in various European countries, further cutting their teeth and exposing them to wider audiences. Another club that doesn't exist anymore, the Metro Club. Mm, Isn't that fun? It's all gone. (laughs) Yeah. On November 14th, 2004, just 11 days shy, just 11 days shy of the one-year anniversary of their first ever show, The Bravery released their major label debut, the Unconditional EP. On the EP were tracks Unconditional, No Breaks, and Out of Line, all of which are on the Bravery's self-titled debut album, which would come out only four months later worldwide. But before that, the boys would return home in triumphant fashion. On to New, New York. <laughs> yeah, to New York. Okay. Return home to New York. Not return home to London, if London. that's where, yeah, where they were anyway. I thought that was where they were from. Yes, no, still, no, no. Okay. They're still not. They're still not an English band. Isn't that interesting? Can't believe it. It's wild. I know. On New Year's Eve 2005, the Bravery headlined the legendary motherfucker party at New York City's even more legendary Avalon nightclub, which was formerly known as the exceptionally legendary Limelight. Limelight is, of course, famous for the arguable greatest club promoter of all time, Michael Alec, and his weekly Disco 2000 party, among other parties. And of course, uh, James St. James and the rest of the club kids. And of course, the fact that Michael Alec murdered Angel Melendez, but that's a story for a totally different show. Yeah, he, uh, he died of an apparent overdose just uh, a while ago at this point. Yeah, not, not sure too long ago. Not too long ago. Let me see. Yeah, it was just, I was, I mean, you know, it's probably about a year ago now. It was when we were writing this episode, which, spoiler alert, folks, this is the demo we recorded, so this is from a little bit ago. Yeah. Yeah, December 26th, 2020 is when uh, the New York Times reported his death. There you go. Just Michael Alec, fixture of New York City nightlife, dies at 54. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. December 26th, 2020. That's got to be a different show, though. Did, did he have a band? <laughs> not, not that I know, but I wouldn't be surprised if he, like, said... In a K-hole many times, like, we should start start a band. band. (sighs) Yeah. Start a band together. You and me. (laughs) 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 Well, after this party, the kingmaking was in full force. Village Voice, Rolling Stone, and Spin Magazine, all in rapid succession, had declared the bravery as the next big thing. That's right, folks. They were going to be the next strokes. It's incredible how many people's career were started and pushed heavily by the recording industry and just hopes to become the next strokes. It's insane. It was like, okay, this band's going to be the next strokes. We got it. Until the strokes became the the strokes, the strokes were the next, they were the new Nirvana for a little bit. Really? In terms of relevance and the, the, was their articles? 
They're like, oh shit, they're yeah. gonna be the new Nirvana. Yeah, like, this is like this is the new Nirvana we're waiting for. And articles are written about how like the new Nirvana will not sound like the will not sound like Nirvana, and this is proof. And right. like you know, talking about basically the the American tabloids and the English tabloids. You know, the Strokes were the first saviors of rock. You know, and then, right, like, right. Before, before the bravery and before the jet, which oh, oh, wait till we get to that episode, folks. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Shortly after this point, the unconditional single got a music video that dominated MTV2, and the floodgates were obliterated. By the time an honest mistake came out with a music video, the bravery were rock stars. Over the course of their dedicated tour for their debut album, they began writing the songs that would become their sophomore album, The Sun and the Moon. Whose songs hold three of the top five of their songs on Spotify, and the song we're talking about today isn't even on that top five. (laughs) Grocery store rock, man. Grocery store rock. People, this is for the Hallmark crowd, man. We're going to talk about that. You need cereal, dude. Everybody goes to the grocery store. (laughs) Everybody needs cereal, man. You're so true. That's so true. You're so right. I'm so true. You are so true. You're too true, man. Too true. The Sun and the Moon, that album, that was released May 22nd, 2007. And it was met with characteristically mixed reviews. If there's anything the bravery was good at, it was it's it's getting it's getting thoroughly mixed reviews. While I contend their music always hid hints of their middle of the road pop leanings, this album, this is where they become true, as as we're saying, as I'm saying anyway, grocery store rock. Saccharin songs seemingly written for the Hallmark Channel, Time Won't Let Me Go, and their biggest hit, Believe, will forever reverberate in the hallowed halls of Targets, Walmarts, and local supermarkets everywhere. Which kind of is the best thing you could ask for these days of the music industry. I guess it is. I'm those, not... are subtract, those are subtract plays. Those are subtract plays. You're getting plays. Roy- royalties on those plays at Target. That's true. That's not, that is true. It's probably better than Spotify. <laughs> 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 That's some shit. That's definitely true. <laughs> On December 1st, 2009, the band released their third and final album, Stir the Blood. The album was not embraced by the live, love, laugh crowd. They courted with the sun and the moon. Yeah, well, the title's there. It's like the sun and the moon, live, laugh, and love. And then they they're do, like, yeah. oh, wait a second. No, 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 no. Stir, Stir the, the blood. blood. Yeah, yeah. They're like, no, no, wait, no, wait. <laughs> that's, not what we, we're, that's not what we meant. That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, wow. That's so true. That's so true. And while it wasn't embraced by those folks, it was also not as vehemently hated by the arbiters of hipster taste as The Sun and the Moon was. Exactly. Rendering this album kind of a a middling, unheard thud to all but the most ardent of the Bravery's fans. I didn't mean to laugh at that. The next several years saw the Bravery trudge on and ultimately peter out. One of the songs has a bunch of plays off of that, and it has some, some ridiculous name like Hate Fuck. Yo, I... I, f- I fuck with hate fuck. It's not terrible. It's really not their worst song. And the real odd one-off of this record, though, is the song I Want to Be Your Skin. Yeah, that's a, that's a real serial killer of a title there. Yeah, I definitely lost a little sleep on, over that one. <laughs> There's also <laughs> one, one more 
<laughs> She's so bendable. Yeah, that's. Uh, mm. Yeah, I don't know where to go with that one. I mean, listen, sex is awesome, and songs about sex are awesome, but this one is a weird one. Yeah, they're really pushing away from uh, the sun and the moon. They're really pushing away from the sun and the moon. Crowd with this one, yeah, taking it out of the grocery store and trying to get a little bit closer to the yeah. the uh, the adult the adult video store, perhaps. Yeah, the uh, the adult section of the Target Records. <laughs> yeah, or just like the basement. All the weird basement stuff that happens at Target, probably. All the... What the... <laughs> I don't know. I want to know what world you're in right now, man. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like you know, I'm in a world with endless exploration. I've never been in a fucking basement Target. Target basement. <laughs> basement Target. Oh, man. There is a basement Target. Let's get out of Target's sorry, basement right I'm now, because that sounds like a dangerous place to be for many reasons. No offense to Target. I'm sure you got a lovely basement, but I don't want to be there. The group's floor. <laughs> the group's breakup was made official by Sam Endicott on April 25th, 2014, via a letter to fans posted on the group's Facebook page. Not quite an email to fans from POD, but hey, you know, it was 2014, man. <laughs> Past email, I guess. With 1.1 thousand likes, this is a weird thing, 271 comments, and 142 shares. This is the bravery's most high-profile and engaged with social media post. Period! That's wild. It's kind of chilling, and kind of sad. I checked. They don't have an official Instagram, and their Twitter is darker than their Facebook. Wow. Yeah. Oy. So the bravery. Here are some numbers. 2003 to 2014. 11 years total, six years from the start to their peak, three albums, just one year spent in anonymity. Literally 91% of their entire existence was spent in the public eye as a bad band. <laughs> well, as a band, but I'm saying as a bad, bad band. band, as a bad band, signed to a major label. Yeah, I think a couple of them went on to write more music. I mean, a couple of them went on to write more music after uh, sure. the bravery right, thing. Right. Anthony Brolick, whatever, and Mike <laughs> Hindert. Good I job. Think. Good job. Shout out to Mike Hindert. Yeah, yeah. They got a current project called Gone Sugar Die. Okay. It's. I did uh, not check that out. No, it's, avo- it's worth avoiding. <laughs> What a review. Yeah. That is an incredible, Jeremy, that is critical insight. <laughs> that is critical fucking insight, man. Holy not shit. Really. <laughs> no, no, that was good. This is what people are paying us for, dude. Anyway. Wait, people are paying us? That's the point. <laughs> they should be, especially when you're saying things like that. I hear you. Let's talk about the song's creation. All right. Unconditional was written and produced by Sam Endicott, and it was mixed by Michael H. Brower. Unconditional was among the very first Bravery songs written and would be released twice, technically. First as the lead single for the Unconditional EP, and later, again, as the third single from their debut album. But 
to be real, Unconditional really just served as a de facto lead single for the Bravery's self-titled album, as the majority of people would uh, have their attention on the forthcoming album and not the stage-setting EP. We'll touch on that a bit more uh, when we're discussing the, cur- the commercial impact of this. And actually, we'll talk about this again once we get to Jet, because they did a similar strategy... But they did a little differently. They left their biggest song for the album. They didn't put it on the EP that still had four tracks that ended up appearing on the album. <laughs> critical res- ha-ha. 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 critical reaction, commercial impact, chart success, and fan response. Critical reaction. Mm-hmm. Well, critical reaction was mixed, as is the case with seemingly all bad band great song subjects. Both hype and hate were exuberantly expressed by critics from both music periodicals and your local town's newspaper. They were, of course, heralded as the next big thing and the new strokes before they ever even released anything. Their album was loved, hated, and sort of liked. It was as mixed as mixed could be, quite frankly. Commercial Impact. Unconditional's commercial impact is kind of hard to pin down. The band was prominent during a time when the act of buying singles wasn't as common as it is now, and there were no streaming services. Radio Airplay and the videos, videos ubiquity on MTV were kind of more meaningful achievements in ways back then than your hit single actually selling. For the average consumer back then, the closest most people came to buying a single was, was buying the album the single was on. Music nerds like Cherry, myself, you know, we would go out of our ways to buy singles, especially when we knew non-album tracks would be B-sides and things like that. Of course. Yeah, right? Singles were such a strange commodity then, you know? Yeah. You'd usually find them in, like, a mysterious and and often neglected section of your record store called Singles and Imports. And and about EPs, they they were often found there too, oddly enough, depending on the store, of course. I, I don't know, I've rarely found an EP that was sorted with full lengths. Yeah, I don't remember that specifically. I definitely mm-hmm. remember going for the B-sides, though, and, like, the import Absolutely. thing. And, like, you know, just being like, oh, yeah, you like uh, you like this band, but have you heard this B-side? <laughs> <laughs> you know? like, hey, you what think, an experience that was, man. Yeah, that was so cool. And, yeah, just, I mean, to just talk about the strokes, like, New York City Cops was not released on no. the American release. So you want to get just, like, a major... 9-11 really changed everything, didn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, definitely. It changed <laughs> the strokes. <laughs> it did, man. It fucked with their release. It did. Um, no, you're right. And that song was dope. And it was amazing being able to discover that song. Right. And you had to put the work in. You had to go into the import section and be like, oh, yeah, like I need more from right. the strokes. Like, <laughs> from the strokes. You know, I have to buy this like Japanese version of this fucking record. This is Two episodes in a row. The strokes are coming up now in, in strange ways, you know? Well, I... Don't worry. It's not going any further than that ever. <laughs> no, we could... They're indisputably a great band. They just unfortunately had some bad records. Yeah, and continue yeah. to... Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't need to talk about that. The bravery. The bravery. Back to the bravery. The bravery had bigger hits, they especially did. with their second album's single... <laughs> Oh man, no, this is good, 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 this is good. 
The Bravery had bigger hits, especially with their second album singles. But Unconditional is the song that catapulted them into awareness and cemented their next big thing status. Chart success. Unconditional reached the number 49 spot in the UK singles charts, and it peaked at number Chart. 34 in the US in the Billboard Hot 100, where it spent six weeks in the chart. Wasn't that easy? This is this was like the crazy. This was the this simplest the one. Easiest one. That yeah. chart almost got right by me. They really did. Yeah. <laughs> Fan response. Looking back. You'd be forgiven for not understanding how serious this song's impact with fans was. An Honest Mistake is now the most celebrated single from their self-titled debut. It ended up to become the bigger single of the two. But, but that at the time, that was simply the song that made them even more famous. That was their first music video with a real budget. But Unconditional is the song that broke the band. It's the song that battered down our doors and made us take note. Unconditional was the song, just personally speaking... That when it came out and the video aired on MTV2, it made my friends call me and, and ask, like, hey, yo, Finelli, have you heard this song? This is crazy. So that's our fan response for today. <laughs> <laughs> One of your friends was like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't that an amazing source to cite? Now we're a real music podcast. Yeah. Now we're a real music podcast. Now that we're using our, my friend, quote unquote, my friends Some as a guy. source <laughs> in 2005 <laughs> let's get into segment three and what makes this band bad let's do it let's talk about it let's talk about it so i'm uh coming in hot here. do it yeah no beating around the bush why would you no reason to the bravery is a bad band Indisputable. I respect if you like them, but things aren't as simple as, you know, hey, well, I think they're good, so we just have different opinions, man. (laughs) No. The Bravery is a bad band, and here's one key reason why. The Bravery never had the time and space to truly discover for themselves who the Bravery is and what the Bravery actually sounds like. There's this conversation, um, you know, about the importance of authenticity that I see get maligned and lamented by mm, anti-critique soft boys in music forums who are no doubt very proud of how post-critique and highly evolved they are. They say something doesn't need to be authentic to be good, and they're right. There's, there's no one specific ingredient to be good. That's why we don't use the same criteria to judge bands on their badness or their song's greatness. It's different from episode to episode, right? There's no one specific ingredient to good no, or of bad. Of course. Exactly. Everything That's has to be viewed as a case by case. That is what we do. We view everything individually, case by case. Hey, but wait. About authenticity. It is a pretty... <laughs> Listen, if there's no specific ingredients for good... Authenticity is a pretty pretty great ingredient in this, the sauce of, of being good. And the legendary bands that unanimously, for better or for worse, are agreed upon as being among the greatest of all time tend to share something in common. They had time, away from the spotlight, as nobody's, to steep in authentic self-discovery until eventually finding out the sound and presentation that truly reflects who they are as a band and attracts a wider audience. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't mean to be a gatekeepy like old dude, but 
there's some value in, in pay your dues. It's not just some old fuddy-duddy bully culture force hierarchy sort of thing. It's about being out in the open, unsupported by a machine, <laughs> being unsupported by an industry, being out in the wild as a band, actually demonstrating that you can actually set some hearts and minds on fire. This is part and parcel of being authentic. It means you weren't chosen artificially due to the need to fill a void and having the right look, you know? It makes bands better, and it makes fans' investment in and love for bands even more meaningful. The Bravery didn't have this experience. <laughs> Within one year of starting up, they were already being fast-tracked by a record company. Within a year and a half, they were rock stars, and they were famous. Yeah, that immediate rise and overnight success is such a sought-after thing, generally. Uh, that you want to happen for your band, but it just clearly doesn't line yourself up it's not, for a career yeah. and long-term success and, you know, uh, yeah. It's, it's one of those things, like, wanting extreme wealth, like, when you're, quote-unquote, young enough to enjoy it. It seems like a great idea, but you're too young to, like, safely enjoy it. Totally, totally. <laughs> you know? You're, like, inexperienced, man. And this is what this band basically suffered from the, the, the bravery never discovered to find and established who they are and what they sound like and still haven't none of them have continued in the industry in any way well a little bit but and, and, and they've had bands and i think sam endicott's been a songwriter you know nowhere close to what the bravery was for that time they haven't definitely not in terms of awareness no 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 but the, they were, during their time, shrewd and calculating. They were at the very right place at the right time, post-9-11 NYC, which was, in this case, <laughs> ground zero for the 2000s hipster-tinged garage rock revival. <laughs> you know, They knew the poses to strike, the clothes to wear, sort of, and the sounds to use in their key singles to hook people. Sort of also. <laughs> and more importantly... The hooker, rabid, and starving A&R team looking for the next big thing out of NYC. Definitely that. The bravery was marketed and sold to us as one thing, and it kind of turns out they were never actually that at all. Yeah, it's wild. It is crazy. I don't see this ever get discussed in quite the way I'm going to phrase it here, so here it goes. The bravery were sold to the media and to us by way of the media and key moments and initial singles as a dark, danceable, synth-driven, new-wave garage rock super hybrid. There is but one single song on their debut album that actually, note for note and segment for segment, lives up to that sort of description. The song is unconditional. Unconditional. <laughs> An honest mistake and fearless have moments of that? That's just it, moments. Each of those songs quickly turn into bright, sunny, middle-of-the-road, yes, even honest mistakes, singer, songwritery, grocery, grocery store, rock. Typically by the chorus. Really, really, with, oh, God, at the chorus for sure. The one consistent thing I hear in Sam Endicott's song, all the songs, is that he loves late-60s Britpop. The kind of goofy, overly ornate, thumping type of stuff you hear on a post-65 Kinks album. 
That's a lot of what their second album, The Sun and the Moon, draws inspiration from. And you can hear that peeking through the thin veils of gloom that superficially adorn the facade of each song on their self-titled debut. So whiny. Me or the band? The band. Oh, okay, all right, all right. for once, for once, okay, for once, for once, not me. Beyond that identity crisis and bait and switch mismarketing, the bravery is the type of band that heavily leans on filler songs. Yeah. The songs that aren't their singles, really, are very clearly not the singles. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For sure. Yeah. The Sun and the Moon is mostly filler. It's good, it's good, it's good for stuffing a throw pillow that, that says live, love, love laugh, love, stitch, yeah, yeah, or wine o'clock. Home is where the heart is. Right? right. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. The Sun and the Moon is mostly filler. And that makes sense, as it is the band at their grocery store rock peak. That is the album with the widest appeal. That is the album with their biggest song. And as Jerry pointed out, three of the top five on, on Spooderfy right now. What? When we were, wrote this fucking episode a year ago? And also still right now. Yeah. Like, what <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> and they're bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. But if we focus on their debut album, Swollen Summer is an excellent example of the bravery on autopilot. Now, this thought isn't mine, so I have to give credit to the original 2005 Pitchfork review of this album. In that review, critic Adam Mortar states, quote, Swollen Summer sorely lacks a jaw-dropping melody to complement its go-go's power chords. I want to try and make next summer's nickname Swollen Swollen Summer. (laughs) It sounds instead of like hot girl wrong. summer. So swole. Yo, yo, okay, now I'm in. Yeah, hell yeah, summer. brother. Yeah, yeah, get hell swole. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about that. You know me, fucking Jack, brother. Swole. Fucking, fucking Jack, dude. Cool. <laughs> uh, the boys like it. Anyway, I couldn't have said it better myself. And listen. Punk made me. I'm I'm all for simple and even literal one note melodies, but then something else has to be going on, too, you know? What else? I refuse to say anything else. Sam Endicott, let's talk about this. Sam Endicott is not Johnny Rotten telling us he's an anarchist and an antichrist. Right. He's not. And, and, and a song like Swollen Summer, without some shimmering and engaging melody, kind of just becomes like a throwaway rave-up rocker tune. This is padding. The bravery's most natural, effortless, and perhaps even impassioned moment was sadly too little too late. Stir the blood is the best the bravery ever was. I'm going to say it. Just without any real hits, which is a fucking wild idea. It was their best work, but it had no hits. I mean, you know, that's actually a valid statement for a lot of bands, their releases. Anyway, and Slow Poison... Doesn't count, by the way. You, you, you did that as a single. You didn't know that that song existed, I guarantee you. I def had never heard of that shit. Right? Like, I had no idea that was a single before I watched it for the making of this uh, yeah, episode. never. And that song actually does, by the way, sound like them sadly aping the killer Spaceman Steez from their Day and Age album. Well, Day and Age, mm. Sun and Moon. <laughs> wow. Wow. Wow! Wow, how about that for some paint by numbers? You'd love to see it. You'd love to see it. How yeah, about that? It's all a formula. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating stuff. It really is. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, anyway, so if they're bad, you're probably wondering, what makes Unconditional so great? 
I fucking am. <laughs> <laughs> I need this. I need this part here. Amazing. I'm, w- I'm with you on the bad. <laughs> That's usually where we agree mostly, I think. Yeah, this sucks. And yeah. then we're like, okay, we'll, we'll stop. It. That's right. Well, let's talk about it from a technical perspective. Okay. The song starts with a stark synth arpeggio pattern. Undeniable. Comp- <laughs> Right? You kind of can't disagree with that. God, at least I've said something that's definitive so far. Complex as it is, this is the hook of the song. It's, it's literally the first thing we hear, and it's actually it's a memorable melodic pattern played by the song's key instrument, the keys, the synths. But part of what makes this hook so effective is its complexity. Even if you don't recall the exact melody it plays, you remember the cyclical, swirling, hypnotic, lilting pattern. We don't typically hear hooks this busy and complex, That's part of what makes this so jarring. It is jarring by design and how unaccustomed to it we are. I think that this is one of the band's strongest aspects. Yeah, totally. They really know how to like pick a patch and pick a a sound that works. Yes, I definitely agree with you on that. That was that nerdy pedal boy inside I was looking for. Uh, Yeah, no, they pick cool cool sounds. (laughs) In technical terms. In technical terms, the sounds are cool. Now, the most most comparable hook to Unconditional's hook in rock music may very well be Guns and the Roses, Sweet Child of Mine. That song's famously complex hook is iconic and indelible. Unconditional's hook is not at that level, but it does follow in Sweet Child of Mine's footsteps as a wonderfully strange and very surprising hook in, in how long and cyclical and swirling it is. Yeah, exactly. Which song are you doing, man? Which song are you playing? I don't even know. Why? <laughs> the song. Oh, that's what your your cover of Unconditional is. Crazy Town covering Unconditional. Yeah. That's dude. You, dude. Out fucking rageous. I love that. <laughs> that was the joke. Seth. That that, that was the joke. Like. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I figured it out. Threads. But that was the joke. Also, <laughs> had no segue for that. Have you heard the joke? <laughs> have you, have we, you heard the joke? We try to tell them on this show for, for once in a while. Yeah, the joke. The joke. The Speaking of the joke, the song also introduces <laughs> each instrument. Uh, Five-star segue. The song also introduces each instrument one by one. A wonderful trick for a band's first single, very first single, to pull off. The bass comes in achieving that hauntingly raw and fried thunderous low end. That kind of sound Peter Hook of Joy Division New Order would sometimes hit. But it stays there. A staccato kick drum comes in, ending in a pyrotechnic snare roll, blasting off like a, a, a wreath of C4 explosives wrapped around you. And lastly, a clean, trebly, and tucked back in the mix guitar rounds out the rhythm before it takes center stage at the end of the phrase to signal the coming of the verse. And here comes the verse. Here comes the verse. That guitar said. That <laughs> guitar, yay. And hey, folks, that's all just the intro. Now, if you've been paying attention to this show, you can probably tell I'm a sucker for shifting dynamics, the thing I talk about. And hey, I think we kind of all are. Why, this song, this song really relies on that heavily. Each verse sees guitar and synths drop out, leaving just bass, drums, and vocals to shine in the sparse soundscape. This is a real 
Pixies feel. The loud, quiet, loud tactic Nirvana made famous. Don't say anything about it, Jeremy Cohen. We hear all of everything, and then nearly everything stops and fades away, reverberating and decaying into the distance as a mid-tempo driving bassline bolstered by a beat based on the kick drum with an occasional snare hit lays the foundation for breathy and evocative vocals. Nirvana sucks. <laughs> Get you, Jeremy. We'll see. I'll get you. We'll see. And about the vocals. Tell me about them. About these vocals. Let's talk Ooh, about it. We got an actual melody here. A really beautiful, memorable, singable, simple, but no less impactful melody. This is a beautiful fucking melody. Sing, sing it to you. It's nice, beautiful. Sing it to yourself or pluck it out on your instrument of choice. Think of some harmonies. Do whatever you do. And tell me, you tell me, you tell me that this isn't a beautiful melody. Assessing a verse and the quality of its melody is actually a pretty great way to determine for yourself if a song is filler. Think of the true classics and the verse. The verse is always just as good as the chorus, if not even better if you got a personal connection to it. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a song. <laughs> Again, you know it's with a that song. killer insight. It's a song that you like, the song. <laughs> you know, if there's one part. That you like. You you know, you probably like. The song. You probably like the song. Amazing how it works out that way. But if there's like a part that? you like and then also a part you don't really like, you might not like the song. Isn't that interesting? Don't you say. <laughs> <laughs> don't you know? Don't you know? I feel like you just turned in from my like Paisan to Canadian. You know. Which actually, there's a lot of Vitals in Canada. Canadian Italians, if you're what? listening, get at me. I'm Finelli, Andrew Patrick Finelli. Talk to me you with don't have, your hands. But what about Canada? You got nothing in Canada. No, but some Italian Canadians are listening and they want to talk to me about being Italian and okay. the continent of North America. And I'd like to have that conversation. So you'd rather talk to Italian Canadians than Italian Americans? Probably is exactly what I'm saying. That's yes. what you're saying. I yes, just I'm comfortable actually saying that. You can. I will stand by that. I'm more comfortable talking to Italian Canadians than Italian Americans. That was an unintentional Italian slip out, by the way. I wonder if they're Canadian Italians or Italian Canadians. Wow. Because they're Italian Americans. I don't think we're equipped to debate this on this show. We're going to need to phone in a Canadian at some point in the near future. We need a Canadian. Let's talk about the pre chorus. For the pre chorus, bass and synths just drop out, causing a very dramatic dynamic shift, leaving only guitar, vocals, and drums. It's an awesome trick to maintain momentum, but still pull things back just enough to offset sections and build excitement for the eventual drop. And chorus to come. You like how smooth we, we slid into that just away from talking about Canadians? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah. yeah, we usually do so many things so slickly on this show. Isn't that fantastic? Sick. How about that? And the chorus. Oh, man, this chorus. This chorus is awesome. Rad. We have the full band. That's what I think. We have the full band playing together. The hook is returned, but it's deeper in the mix, and it underscores the whole chorus. And the chorus, more than any other track of theirs, fully makes good on that darkly danceable promise. This chorus, I think, is the most vital the band has ever sounded. Endicott's crooning here has 
the most conviction he's ever had. Now let's let's talk about it from a personal point of view, shall we, Jerry? Yeah, I mean, for me, this is a tough one. They for sure hit the mark. Oh, this one is a tough one? <laughs> this one's a real tough one. I guess they're all tough ones. No, some of them I think I love. This is this is a real hard one for me. Because oh, it wow. feels... I can't wait to hear this. It feels like they definitely hit exactly what those a guys were looking for at the time. Can't Agreed. argue with that. And I don't like hate the song as much as the rest of their tracks, which is technically a win. Also agreed. Mostly unbothered by it, I guess. <laughs> and it has the right structure and formula. It seems as though it's just that. So honestly, I, I still need some convincing. Oh, no. God damn. Why is this song so great? <sighs> Excellent job feeding me right there, Jerry. Thank you very much. That was yeah. good. That was a very good. Strong segue. Uh, teamwork makes the dream work. All right, let's talk about what makes this song great. Let's talk yeah, about it. Tell me. All right, let's talk about it. So there's an incredible amount of emotional truth in this song, despite the inanity of the lyrics. And the lyrics are inane. Perhaps not at first, but definitely once you dig in, there is a simple theme to the lyrics. Contradiction. The bulk of my time exploring these lyrics kind of had me feeling that the, the use of contradiction in this song was a little lazy and amounted to nothing more than a gimmick. I mean, you know, when you make the choice to write lyrics where each subsequent <laughs> lyric just, just contradicts the previous lyric, the song kind of writes itself. You've, yeah. You've made, yeah, you've made your job easy in ways, easier in ways, but you also made it harder. Assuming, anyway, you want to maintain some semblance of sense to your lyrics. And so that's what led me to my initial issues with the lyrics, is that they just, they don't, they don't have, they lack sense. They're inane. I wonder why. I never wonder why. The easiest things are so hard. That's an example right there. And you better believe I absolutely hated that for quite a while. I kept, I kept thinking that the, the device of contradiction could be preserved while also coming up with some more thoughtful lyrics that didn't just wholesale rely on the gimmick of directly refute the literal previous line, not even the previous line, the previous word. But then it dawned on me. It hit me. <laughs> These lyrics in their unabashed, bold face and borderline stupid flim-flam, I want this, I don't want this style, uh, they... They're actually profoundly human lyrics. This is the human condition laid bare before us. And I can't, I actually can't believe I'm saying that about a bravery song, but I, I believe it. You're going there. I'm, you really think it's all that. I am going there. We really go there on this show. Really go there, except not there, but here. So let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about it. The, this, these lyrics being the human condition laid bare before us. I think that's especially true when Sam sings things like, well, we're on a first name basis now, Sam. It's me and Sam. And Sam. Me and Sam. Uh, me and Sam, yeah. Endicott, especially when Endicott sings, I just want love. I just want something. Something for nothing. It's base. It's shallow. It's self serving. It's desperate. It's real. It's us. It's being human. It's confusing. Human. It's also, god damn, it's really just being selfish. Wanting love, wanting something in return for giving nothing. But it is really 
That's just how so many of us behave, man. Actually, actually, and I don't mean to get like too silly and deep over this fucking song, but really, that is in that line. He summed up our behavior in an, in an astoundingly poignant way, in my opinion. Now, listen, I don't know. I, I either don't know. I somewhere between don't know slash. To, to firmly believe that this is not what Sam Endicott intended to completely sum up the human condition, right? In ways, a need for love and wanting as much as you can without having to give much at all. But uh, I, listen, after, after seeing other interviews with him, I definitely, the guy doesn't seem to be a deep thinker, but I listen, I, I'm just saying, listen, I don't know. If, I don't know what he intended for these lyrics. That first blush, they're dog girl. You know, but then they actually end up being profound when you kind of think about them for a while, maybe for too long. I don't know. I really don't know where I'm in the journey anymore, frankly. I need a totem to pull me back, perhaps. But I, I, I'm also going to say I don't think he thinks his own lyrics are doggerel. What I believe, what I do definitely believe is that he thought he was just writing something visceral and true, which I think he did. But... <laughs> Just like meditation, bringing you to a place you never could have expected, you know, as it allegedly does, these lyrics, despite all potential meaninglessness, actually achieve something quite profound. They aren't just, quote, visceral and true. These lyrics pull off an amazing trick of being utterly stupid and lazy until you, for yourself, discover the potentially unintentional emotional truth here. Say it again. I just want love. I just want something. Something for nothing. I've been lonely. I, I don't mind saying that, you know. I, I am tired and sapped from a, a meaningless and unrewarding decade-long career in fucking marketing. I have, I have no shame in saying I just want love. I want something for nothing. Hey, you know, I just want love. I want, I want, hey, I want something for nothing. I don't mind saying that, you know what I mean? But, but... should go to London. <laughs> I, heard, I, heard, I heard that's a good place to go if you want to go, you want your band If you want something for nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Watch it. Strokes to the tube, buddy. But maybe, hey, maybe Endicott knows more here than I'm even giving him credit for. After all, he does end by saying, I'm the beggar and the chooser. I'm accused and accuser. But nothing's unconditional. Unconditional. <laughs> now, these are not self-effacing lyrics. They're actually self-critiquing lyrics. These are lyrics of, of resigned revelation. These are words of crestfallen understanding in the face of dreams of easy happiness far beyond one's grasp. Sam Endicott, you know... <laughs> Sam. Sammy Sam. <laughs> Samuel... Endicott does not roll off the tongue. It's a rough name. I think it's a fine name. You do? Yeah. So, Sam Endicott, I'm sorry for all the bad things that I said about your band, and specifically your lyrics. You wanted something desperately, and you tried so hard to achieve it and hold on to it with this band. No matter how gauche and goofy and uncool you came off, your attempt to ride waves and be at the peak of trends, man, that is fucking, that's real. 
That's relatable. I want to be fucking cool. You know what I'm saying? We, we Listen, hey, we want our stars to be more than we are, right? Sure. But sometimes they aren't. And I think we should celebrate that. Because as a tired, constantly failing 34-year-old, I, I f- now feel closer to Sam Endicott's lyrics and desires than ever before. I, honestly, I understand wanting to be cool, trying so hard to be cool and coming off as a little less than cool. I understand mind-numbingly large ideas that come out in what I like to describe as the, the poetry of inarticulation. It's like hearing, oh well, whatever, never mind. Don't you fucking dare. And understanding, understanding the profound sea of sadness and despair that is so large and unwieldy that all it can be expressed as is, oh well, whatever, never mind. I wonder. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I bet you do. I bet you do. I never. And that's the problem. I never wonder. <laughs> oh, I see what you're doing. I see what that was smart. That was good. That was clever. I liked that. I liked that. That was a good inversion and play on the song that we're discussing now. That was good. I like that, Jeremy Cohen. That's why. We, that's why. That's why we have you on the show here. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. We. We. Yeah. We. The, yeah, the, that's why we have me. That's why we. <laughs> that's why we have me here. <laughs> Long-running special guest, Jeremy Cohen. <laughs> Oh, man. There's a heartbreaking and tragic energy in this song. A resolute woefulness. An understanding that what you want and how you want it... Baby, I got it. (laughs) It will never be yours. And Sam Endicott, man, I'm sorry, but your band isn't good. But that's what makes your band... Well, at least this song. (laughs) Great. You're not a rock god, man. (laughs) Not at all, dude. You're a man. Your band is not the stuff of legends. It is a common and relatable couple of paragraphs in the great and ongoing epic saga that is art as entertainment. So, Sam Endicott. <laughs> yeah, I, thought, well, I got that one just for you, baby. Endicott. 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 I'm sorry, man. But I'm also thankful. You, your band, your songs remind us that Even the best among us are just humans. Humans. Merely being. That's some poetry right there for you, Jeremy. I'm not gonna, not gonna, not gonna give any more of that, but that's some poetry. I didn't come up with that. I didn't come up with that. I would have loved to have come up with that. And we just, (laughs) we're humans merely, this is me, this is like the, I can't believe I wrote this script. This is like the chuggiest thing I've ever written. Anyway, I'm gonna finish it. I'm gonna commit to it. I'm 34, and you know what, Jeremy? You're gonna commit to it. Yeah, because sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta live. So you gotta laugh, and you just gotta love. And tonight, right now, as I say this, I'm gonna dance like no one's watching. Let's do this. So we're just humans, humans merely being, and we just want love, love, and something, something, not for nothing, but you know, something commensurate to what we put into life. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> The song sucks, dude. What? You didn't convince me here. Wow. And I think this is one of those cases where you're just smarter and more creative than this, this guy. Oh. More, more creative than this guy. I'll take it either way. 
And he never in a million years would have been able to come up with that conclusion that you did, even after 15 years of having to think about it, <laughs> doing nothing in the music industry. Uh, you know, I think he would probably <laughs> listen to this podcast and still wouldn't understand the song sucks. <laughs> if anything here, you during this podcast has made this song great by, by attaching, you know, your feelings to it. Wow. Of and of it. Well, at least by some de- definition of great. I'll but take he didn't it. have that. I'll, t- I'll take it. I'm going to take it. Take it. I'm going to take it. That's the best I'm going to get out of you. Because you know what they, you know what they say. You're going to take a horse home and you can't make a fucking wife. <laughs> and I think on that note. Oh, on that note. Well, folks. If that's it. That's it. I think it's time to bid you all, the folks at home, a good night and a farewell. So, folks, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Stay strange, be kind, and love yourselves. Excuse me. <laughs> wow. Wow. And go write some music, listeners. If this song could end up on a podcast in the context of being great, then maybe something you write could be, too. <laughs> And it's as simple as that, honestly. You just got to do one thing great, and the rest of your career can be awful. You got a show. You got a show. show. You got at least one show promised to you. Yeah. How about that? Isn't that interesting? We provide. We might talk about it. I love you. Cherry, I love you. Folks, have a great time. See you. Have a great whatever you're doing. You know. Love you too, Andrew. And goodbye, everyone. See you in hell, folks. Ba-dum-bum-ba-dum-bum. Boom. Mm-hmm.